Welcome to Six Degrees of Silvis, a podcast where we talk with artists, art collectors, advisors, museum directors, and curators to learn firsthand how the art world operates and how each participant uniquely addresses vital issues of our time. This week, John talks with artist Erwin Ruddle. The term post-digital, I mean, I came up with this uh, in my first statements, basically, probably 20 years ago, I assume so. And uh, post-digital because, you know, we are exposed to digital media 24-7 at this point. And, um, and I, you know, programmed computers in my 20s and 30s and my work focused on, uh, you know, the artistic expressions on screens mostly for a long time or, or projections or computer projections or video projections in uh, audio, of course, as well, uh, and using electronic media as a foundation. But I became very dissatisfied with it, meaning um, that everything becomes very flat if it's on the screen. Flat as in left literary, there's no, uh, you know, texture. There's, it's, it always becomes very flat, you know. And I, I'm a very sensual person. So I, I, at one point, I just re rejected that flat. I basically didn't smell. And I like when things smell. Here's the host of the show, John Silvis. I am your host, John Silvis. I'm an art advisor and a curator based in New York. Most of my research I share with my friends and my clients to focus on global contemporary art, usually with emerging and mid-career artists. With this podcast, I hope to pull back the curtain to uh, allow us to engage with some of the conversations that happen in the art world and encourage and push the art conversation forward. Please join me in welcoming these wonderful guests. Thank you everyone for joining us today. Erwin, it's incredible to see the way you've evolved and progressed as an artist, starting with uh, being in the uh, computer art MFA at SVA in the 90s, and then kind of moving through multiple work phases, experimenting with uh, technology, and then finally working with light. Um, since 1997, you have talked about your process of working uh, with light and technology as reverse engineering, sort of retranslating uh, the abstract aesthetic language of virtual reality and computers back into your large scale light installations. Um, space is also an important element of your work and many of our audience might have seen uh, your works such as the uh, piece called Fetch at the Wexner Center in Columbus, Ohio or the whiteout work that was featured in Madison Square Park. One of the things I like about your work is uh, the different ways that your body experiences it. And I also like your relationship to different aspects of art history that not only references minimalism, but uh, to some degree, there's an element of sound and color theory as well. So I feel like there's a lot of layers to the work. So it's great to talk to you tonight, Irvin. Your work has been featured all over the world. 
in Austria, Turkey, Korea. I believe you've been in a number of museum shows, including the Whitney Biennial. Uh, a really great installation you did here in New York. It was called Wide Out, which then also traveled to Oklahoma City. And you uh, very recently, um, this winter, installed Circles of Unity in Tampa, Florida. So welcome, and it's great to talk to you about your work. Thank you, John, for inviting me. It's a pleasure. So um, one of the things that I liked in your um, like work statement that you wrote was that you described your work as a post-digital experience. And you also talked in that same thought, I believe, about setting parameters for yourselves and working with a binary logic. So I'm curious how that plays out in your work, which really expresses itself in many different mediums. Well, the term post-digital, I mean, I came up with this um, in my first statements, basically, probably 20 years ago, I assume so. And uh, post-digital because, you know, we are exposed to digital media 24-7 at this point. And, um, and I, you know, programmed computers in my 20s and 30s, and my work focused on, uh, you know, basically artistic expressions on screens mostly for a long time or, or projections or computer projections or video projections in uh, audio, of course, as well, uh, and using electronic media as a foundation. But I became very dissatisfied with it, meaning um, that everything becomes very flat if it's on the screen. Flat as in like literally there's no, uh, you know, texture. There's, it's just, it always becomes very flat. You know? And I, I'm a very sensual person. So I, I, at one point, I just re rejected that flatness. You know, I basically didn't smell. And I like when things smell. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and then there, there comes the post-digital. So I cannot deny that I spent basically one or two decades behind the screen you know, writing code. And it was a great experience, I think, actually, not, not regretting a single second. Um, it just sharpens your mind. And it sharpens all your aesthetic, meaning your aesthetic mind, uh, as in not just the visual, but you know beyond the visual, obviously. And and so I'm going back to something that expresses itself in the quote-unquote physical reality in three dimensions or four dimensions, if you had time. And it smells, and that's what I'm interested in. I'm, I'm interested in using basically the the uh, very analyt analyt analytically trained mind that comes out of programming, but then apply that mind to the challenges of the physical work. We tell, you know, we have to deal with mass, we have to deal with gravity, we have to deal with friction, we have to deal with smells. And we, it's all that, all those things that we experience beyond, you know, the screen, because on the screen, everything is kind of neat, you know. But once, once you get out of that neatness, that's where it starts to become interesting to me. Mm -hmm. But then I, I apply that analytical rigor or conceptual rigor that you learn through programming. And then, of course, you find your peers in, in art history, which are all the people who came out of the minimal art generation or of the concept art generations, because that was basically pre-digital, but using the same kind of analytical rigor to a medium that for whatever strange romantic reasons uh, 
just said, well, we don't have to be analytical. We are artists. We're all geniuses. You know, we all, we all, you know, life is art and all that 60s stuff. You know, it's like, for me, it ain't, you know, it's just like we have an analytical mind and might, might as well apply it to art as well. So you're using this minimalistic language, let's say, but I also see the two important strains in your work um, that go way back in your studies and that one of those is music and then also the, this understanding of digital code because you're working with the medium of light, but there, there really is a, a sense of rhythm and movement to your work that, that I find really compelling that is maybe different than other artists working with light. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, let's, let's talk about music. So I, I, I started music first. When I, when I went out of high school at the, at the college level, I started music first. And um, I'm not denying that at all in my work. It's, it's inherent because it's me as a person uh, doing it. And um, it's very interesting. I just listened to an NPR podcast yesterday or like some just regular NPR programming and the interview of American Korean filmmaker I forgot his name it was see he made he was trying to you know like um, use a script from a from a book basically and then make a movie out of it but then yeah. he realized he, he wants to do something about his upbringing somewhere in the in the midwest or in idaho or like somewhere in the middle of nowhere as a korean american and then he referred to an american author whose name i also forgot uh that's that says that basically her work became interesting when she didn't try to mimic you know, like the urban culture of the East Coast and write, you know, like East Coast highbrow style. Well, you know, like the kind of New York and literature style. And she came from Arkansas or somewhere. Um, and, and what the Korean gentleman said was, stop admiring, start remembering, you know. And that, that phrase kind of like still st stuck with me for, for good, I think. And it's very interesting because if it applies to my personal history, uh, it started for, for a large degree with music because it was brought up in a you know, musical household and traditionally like every middle-class family in, in, in Austria, you have to learn an instrument. So I did it, you know, uh, grudgingly, but then I was glad that I did. And uh, so despite going to a polytechnical high school for interior design and furniture making, I then started music. And uh, it was kind of logical because I loved music, you know, how can you not love it? And that was very good at it. And, and um, so, so in, in, in that kind of thinking about time and proportions in this ephemeral space of music that guides my work to a very large degree because the fourth dimension time obviously is the essential dimension of music. And if I work with a time-based medium, which is, which are programmed lights or anything that's just, quote unquote, a simple sculpture or painting, you have to know how to work with time. And since as a, as a former slash still kind of dabbling musician, time was my, my medium anyway. So I applied all this knowledge to my light programming. And then literally when I program lights, I very often conduct like, it, you know, like <laughs> I had to take conducting classes as well, of course, uh, and when I started music, which is actually great. So I very often just conduct when I program. So I look at the lights and then I see like, how does this rhythm feel on my body? Or sometimes I walk and conduct and, and 
look at the lights that are programmed. Like how does my body, as in, you know, like a peripatetic creature, react to the lights that are programmed? So it's this very, this, this, this very intersection of, you know, uh, total abstraction and total corporeality. And music per se is like the epiphany or the, the apex of that, you know, intersection of corporeality and abstraction, because you might play, I don't know, like the organ where you have like two hands and your two feet completely engaged, but then you play this completely abstract medium, which music is, or especially some composers. So it's this, this always this intersection of your body, abstraction, sensuality, and total emotion at the same time. And that's what I'm interested in. It's total abstraction, but that minimalism becomes completely maximal because your senses have to kind of live within that space that you create. Well, and music has a mathematical basis as well. There, each Absolutely. composition has its own kind of logic and system to it. Yes, and then like our, our Western music is based on whole number proportions from one through five. So it's a very itchy, it's a very simple, and we talked about the setting parameters. I mean, music is a very sophisticated chess game that just plays with numbers one through five in our Western tradition. Okay. Um, I mean, it's it's on purpose, I keep it very simple here, but it's literally one through five. And if you think about, you know, I just like Soli Witt, I always like to quote him, obviously, you know, it's it's just like there's no question that whatever he does has a very strong, you know, I think musical background or the patterns, all the teachers gives instructions like a composer because he basically writes a score and then you can buy that score and make your, you know, your solo with wall drawing or wall painting. You can go to Sherwin, Sherwin Williams or Home Depot and buy that hue of color that he prescribes in his instruction and you may just paint it then. And then I worked for a collector and we did this, you know, he bought a solo with and we had the drawing and we applied it to the skylight. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the pieces that you did to me that really captures that well is the uh, piece titled Fetch at the Wexner Center in Ohio, yeah. where you designed this kind of oscillating light bar that moves through the architecture of the space. I mean, I, I like that in how it, it, it talks about this idea of rhythm, but also how you engage with architecture. Yes, I mean, obviously, by definition, architecture is an enormous influence of mine. I mean, number one, I studied interior design and furniture making on, on a, on a, in, um, in my the Polytechnical High School. So I was very influenced, obviously, by working with volume, spatial volume, mm -hmm. and uh, and um, and then through my in my father's company, he was a furniture maker. I worked with him and we, you know, went to we worked for the church a lot. So we went to very large churches, always measured the space. And then he designed, you know, church benches and pews and altars and all that. So it's as a very, I was always like fascinated by this kind of space as a medium, you know, and, 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 um, and architecture captures space. I mean, that's what it does. It unfolds in that empty space. And uh, James Joe also wonderfully said at one point when somebody asked him, what are you doing? He said, I'm plumbing space. I'm a, I'm a plumber, but <laughs> I plumb in space. That's my work. My medium is actually space. And, and I, I love that quote. And, and of course, I'm extremely influenced by architects, by, yeah, of course, traditional architecture, but you know, 20th century, 21st century architecture is, is, is an absolute delight for me to explore. But like James Terrell, you also work with light and you, you also 
yes. kind of quote unquote capture light or funnel light in, in a different way that he does. Um, when you were talking about churches, it never occurred to me that, you know, that might have been an early influence oh, absolutely. about absolutely. light. Uh, you know, being in these spaces and having the windows and the lights. And... I mean, of course, I mean, number one, the windows and the light, yeah. then the empty spaces. And then, of course, the, the this music unfolding, like in those empty, empty spaces, was a big influence of mine, you know. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, in, I had, since I grew up in Austria, I had the privilege to visit old, you know, Romantic and, and Gothic churches that are basically untouched, like yeah. in the countryside. And then, of course, you know, most of the traditional architecture in Austria is, is Baroque, but there are some uh, remote churches that still have Gothic, you know, basic substance. So, so I mean, this, for me, that kind of uh, stark architecture of Gothic churches, like, absolutely fascinates me. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the unique aspects of your practices versus an artist who just works solitary in the studio, you're very much engaged with your client. Um, your work is often site-specific, and you have to uh, figure out these complex technical solutions. Um, so I'm curious, you know, just how that process uh, works for you, if you enjoy that. I know you've mentioned before that you love spreadsheets, and um, which I'm yes. the complete opposite. But uh, so, well... But I, I think, you know, you're well, it's, so, so number one, it's, it's you just have to, I mean, it, for me, at least, I'm just talking for me personally, I'm not generalizing this. But we now, thank God, we have the option not to be the solitary artist that sits in, in mother's basement and in front of an easel and tears out his or her hair and pours the emotions on a canvas. I mean, that, that's kind of cute, you know, but it's a very romantic, genius idea. Cute. Well, it doesn't apply to me. I'm not a genius, number one. And number two, um, as a team, you can achieve just much more, especially on a larger scale than you would be by yourself. And if you talk about, you know, uh, even talk about like Renaissance painting and, and Flemish Dutch painting, you know, Van Eyck, or, I mean, they had, they had like 20 assistants, you know, they, you know, they, they did everything. And they, the only thing that is Van Eyck is the signature, you know. I mean, I'm, a, I'm probably lying now, but it's like it's a certain school of Van Eyck, mm -hmm. and or even you know, uh, let's talk about Mr. Leonardo da Vinci. You know, his mainstay and income was he was designing multimedia spectacles for his aristocratic clients. You know, the painting is actually a small, small body of his work. Most of his work was creating basically parties. I mean, being a, a, a multimedia artist that, that you know, uh, designs parties. Of course, there's no, there's not, there's no, um, there's no, there's no leftovers. They're just sketches and, and, and written reports, but this was his main income. Mm. The paintings that we see, the sculptures, absolutely, you know, we are, we are justifiably in awe, but it was all like large teams of people that constructed insane, you know, stage sets and everything. And of course, his sculptures also requires big team. And and so there, there's, this tradition always has existed. It was just kind of the in, we were artists were in denial of that kind of team spirit or teamwork. And it's, it's the same in, in my practice. You know, like I I have a company. I run a company and we have to deal with like lawyers and bookkeepers and accountants and engineers and, and uh, manufacturers and suppliers and 
customs and all of this. Of course, I can, of course, outsource it because I have an office manager that now at least takes care of about uh, most of those issues. But you just have to be able, you just have to have a goal. So if you have a goal to do big work, and that is my uh, goal that, that I happily, you know, commit to and, and confess having, uh, then you have to create a structure around you that you can achieve those goals. And if you look any studio, like Mr. Richard Serra or Klaus Oldenburg or Chris Stowe or, or, or um, Jeff Koons or anybody, they have large teams. Of course, their name is behind that team or that company. And it's the same here. I mean, I have a company name, which is Paramedia, but Paramedia is my company and I'm a single member LLC of that company. But there's a large team of five employees behind that company that, you know, basically... Uh, helps me to, to realize my vision. And it's it's a lot of fun to do. It's very straining, obviously. I mean, there's no no day under like 10, 12 hours. Weekends, maybe five, six hours if I'm lucky. And, and you just have to be able, you just have to at one point basically agree with yourself or, or, or how high is your pain threshold? You know? <laughs> so, so if you're a solitary artist in, in mom's basement, you know, your pain threshold is pretty low. You know, the, your investment is pretty low. You just, you can keep, keep a very low profile, humble existence. You know, none of this would apply to my ideas, obviously. So I just have to see like how much pain can I take that my quote unquote art time, where it's, um, you know, like me toying with ideas and playing with materials and doing kind of, quote unquote, the traditional art stuff is very limited, obviously. So I have this idea, I can sketch it out in my sketchbooks, I can sketch it out on a computer, but then it goes to my designer, it goes to my technician, it's I have to consult my engineer, I have to talk about the budget, see like, can we afford what we're doing, and so on and so forth. So you just have to at one point commit yourself to it, you know, and when you commit yourself, you have to commit yourself to this, you know, a decade, two decades, three decades, because uh, success doesn't come overnight, obviously. And so in, in order to, you know, you decide you want to climb Mount Everest, you know, you just have to plan that expedition for a couple of years, raise money and, and, and then go to Mount Everest. You know, you cannot just say, well, you know, like, no, you can't make, you can make this, you can't make Mount Everest happen, happen from your mother's basement. You just have to say, well, I need a team. I need an expedition, uh, a technical advisor. I need a fundraiser. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so you just have to be able to, deal with logistics it's just a, you have to apply your analytical brain or hire somebody who has an analytical brain you can still be the visionary crazy artist like let's just say mr christo whenever you see him in interviews is like how was he able to manage it but obviously you know there was somebody else behind him you know who who, who did all the business part and he was the crazy visionary artist that everybody admired for his craziness but you know he had the lady yeah, but in, in your process, the it's, a, it's a back and forth between exactly. the creative and then how yes. you realize that in uh yes you, you have to be, you have to be able to, to to wear a lot of hats you just have to you have to have to wear the artist hat you have to wear the accountant hat you have to wear the engineer hat you have to wear the lawyer hat you have to wear just you have to be able to seemingly you have to very often that's probably the most important hat hat you have to wear the cheerleader hat because you know you have to motivate your team and that's also something you learn over years or decades that you know you have to communicate your ideas and just even if it's the 
even if just the, an avalanche just crashed base camp, you know, and all your tents and your equipment just went down in, over the cliff into, into a crack in the glacier, you just have to, you know, bootstrap and start again. And you are the team leader, the cheerleader, you have to make it happen, even if everything collapses around you. And I had projects that went downhill and you just have to say, well, okay, what I have to stop the flow and start, you know, moving upwards instead of downwards. So that's just, you just have to get used to this. And in addition to your large scale works, you've also been developing a series of uh, works for the gallery, for the white cube space, as we call it. Yes. Uh, uh, you've also done some commissions um, within uh, private homes and, and uh, corporate spaces. Uh, the last series you did was titled Reflections at the Hole in New York City. Can you talk a little bit about that series and how your kind of creative process is different for those works? Well, the, the, it's almost it's, it's it's almost a different person doing those pieces. Of course, it's me, uh, but but you have as you have different hats. You have different hats as an artist within yourself. So mm -hmm. there's a hat where I just do small drawings and sketches, and there's the other hat that does the megalomaniac gigantic installations, and there, there's the hat that does the the white cube. You know, like um pieces or like small commissions and um and I, I love doing those pieces because you can you can experiment much more you can uh, you can risk failure because on a large scale if it's a you know large six digit budget you know you better not fail but if you if you fail on a small scale and you make a small wall piece and you invest let's say five thousand dollars in it of course it's, it's tough to lose $5,000 as a piece that just didn't turn out well and doesn't sell or just doesn't work from an, from an artistic point of view. And, and I admit I did pieces that I don't like anymore and would never show again. Yeah. But you can, you can confine that emotional slash financial loss. On a big scale, you can. So doing those small pieces, I can try out ideas that, that some very often come from big installations so there's and then also the other way around. So sometimes I, I do small pieces and then I realize, oh, mm -hmm. that would work on a big scale as well. So there's always like a very uh, creative dialogue be between urban, the, the small scale artist and urban, the gigantic scale artist. We, yeah. we always like talk to each other. And, um, and there was always like, I, I call it like, aesthetic residue like each piece there's always kind of a leftover you know if you think about divisions you know the little leftovers mm -hmm. and, and then you realize okay well i did that piece and it worked well on that aspect but there's something that that wasn't able to um express itself completely on with that piece I'm so you take, take that residue or leftover and then you make another piece you know mm -hmm. And that, that, that works in both directions from large pieces to small pieces and small pieces to large pieces. So that's this kind of ebb and flow between those two scales that is very inspiring to me. It's like, because scale, you know, like in the digital space, you know, scale doesn't really exist because it's completely fluid. You can scale anything to anything. But once you once you work um, in, in quote unquote, the physical world with, with real mass and gravity and friction and wind loads and, and all that, it becomes very interesting to work with those challenges. You know, friction is is, is inspiration. Mm -hmm. 
Well, again, I mean, one another aspect of your work that is super important and different than maybe other artists is that your uh, your projects have to work. They have to uh, physically work so that uh, yes, you know, the viewer can experience and and see them. And I love how physical your pieces are. Um, particularly, I remember uh, the opening of Whiteout when you had a, a beautiful uh, trumpet piece with uh, 10 trumpeteers, I believe. Um, and, uh, you know, just seeing the, the way the light from the city reflected on the piece, uh, the wind, um, particularly in the winter, you had snow on the ground, um, it was really cold. So like all of those things impact how you're engaging with the work and I thought it was very strong. Well, thank you. Um, well, that's, I mean, that's the difference between, you know, like the play, playing in the white cube. So the white cube is white and you, your, your parameters are very set, which is the beautiful thing. It's, 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 a, it's a very constrained environment that lends itself to a certain expression. So what I did, for example, at the whole gallery uh in 2019 could only happen in the white cube because it has to be it has to be that subdued confined light. space like, like let's compare it to like a concert hall like you know a, a Carnegie hall or so and, and then if you play in the i don't know hollywood bowl banchel you know you wouldn't play the same kind of repertoire that you play in the confined Carnegie hall so yeah. once you once you work outside, you have to just work in a, in a completely different mindset, you know. But in that mindset has to take into account that, for example, there are city lights, there's wind, you know, there's snow, there's potential vandalism. But all those things are actually very interesting frictions, you know. I don't know why I use friction today so often, but it seems interesting to me. It's just the the idea that you know, like there's this there's this kind of obstacle or hurdle that you have to overcome but that overcoming helps you to stretch yourself and and you know just challenge yourself and and make work that uses that challenge as something positive not just something negative mm -hmm. so there's always this there's the white cube and then there's the jungle outside where anything can happen you know there are lions and tigers and dragons the white cube doesn't have you know tigers and dragons Great. Well, uh, thanks for the conversation today. Um, we'll encourage everyone to check out your work online and in person, hopefully, someday. Um, all of the information will be on the website. And um, thanks for taking the time out of your 12-hour day. Thank you, John. Thanks for checking out Six Degrees of Silvis. I'm the editor of the show, Evan Halter. If you'd like to learn more about John or the guests we have on the podcast, please visit johnsilvis.com. Thanks for listening.